improve our efforts at communicating at critical times like that when those unexpected things happen. Trust you have been having a Merry Christmas. It is still Christmas, you know. Yes, it is still Christmas as we move towards Epiphany and uh, the, uh, the coming of the Magi. Um, and so we, re- we reflect in these days uh, continually upon the Incarnation. And how many know that the mystery of the Incarnation, as we have just been singing about and even reflecting momentarily upon again, it takes more than one day to ponder that thing, don't you think? Um, even more than 12 days, really. It's a mystery that's beyond our full comprehension, but uh, grateful for the, uh, the, uh, the understanding of the 12 days of Christmas to do so. Uh, so Leviticus 18, as we continue um, in our series here, uh, we began our last time together, we began looking at keys uh, to uh, living and loving, what this life and love is to look like in a broken world, and keys to that. And the first key we looked at in our last session together was uh, understanding God's heart, understanding God's heart. And I'm not going to reiterate that again this morning. Get a hold of the message if you can uh, in digital format and uh, have a listen. The second key we're looking at this morning together is discerning God's word. Would you say that with me behind your veiled faces? Discerning God's Word, and we have opened our Bibles to Leviticus 18, and we're not going to, for sake of time, read this chapter in its entirety, but I encourage you to do so. Uh, I'm going to draw your attention to just a few verses, uh, a short passage from this chapter, if you will, beginning at verse 19, because this is the focus of our attention today as we uh, consider uh, this key of discerning God's Word together. Leviticus 18, verse 19, if you're there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, listen real close and make note of it and have a look at it later. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. Molech was one of the pagan gods of the people that uh, were adversaries of God's children Israel. And in so doing, profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. Isn't that interesting? Even the land 
God's redemptive heart as creator God for the land. So that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Interesting study on the association of the land in God's redemptive purposes to all of this. Discerning God's word, this second key. That is, seeing the objective of his word and his commandments. What is God's purpose in his word, in such passages such as this, that we have just read together with some very strong language in it? What is the objective of his commandments? His rules, His laws. The unspeakable can never fully be spoken by human language. But when God's incarnated living Word spread His light, as we even have just been worshiping in song around that theme, when He spread His light on the pages of the Bible with the Holy Spirit, the written words come alive and we discover the footprints of the word everywhere in God's history with his people. We would be assisted greatly to see these three things. His word has been given that we might benefit through understanding. It's a handbook on life and living. And thirdly, it is His will that we might be fulfilled. His Word's been given that we might benefit through our understanding of it, our discerning of God's purpose and objective of it. It's a handbook on life and living for us. And it is His will that we might be fulfilled. How many know that? God desires that you be fulfilled. Yeah? It's not His will that, you, that, that, that you're miserable. He does not have intention to make you miserable, to make your life difficult. That is not His desire and intention at all. But that you and I be fulfilled. That is the purpose in His heart and with His Word. What is God's will for every human being? I've met people in the worlds of business and arts and music and education and politics who don't, they never put it in these words, never honest with it all the way, but the bottom line when you talk with them, you recognize their avoidance of God in their life is due to this fear that they will somehow lose access to success because God will reduce their creativity and potentiality. 
Think of it. They avoid entering into any kind of relationship with God, even though they are being in their hearts even drawn by the Holy Spirit in that direction. But there is a fear that they cannot overcome that somehow if they enter in, if they engage with God, they'll lose access to whatever success they have known because He will reduce their creativity and potentiality. That seems so absurd to me. Think of it. The Creator reducing your creativity and potentiality. My goodness, He is the one who gave these in the first place. He is the one who put the desire there to be creative, to have capacities that would express that very creativity through an individual life. Or who else would anyone want to use their creativity unless they had some sort of fight with God. Something that created and left some sort of barrier with God, between them and God. Disappointment with God, whatever it may be. This fear that we're talking about. And so their creativity becomes focused on things that seek to undermine what are known values of life and living. Things that seek to laud or applaud those things that are somehow less than worthy. And so we have the agony of the misuse of creativity in our world around us, in every sphere of society. And it's essentially born from the pens and the skills and the abilities of those who are angry with God for some reason. Yet if they opened up to Him, they would find that His will for their life is the highest fulfillment of their creativity. Reaching a maximum level that they will never ever discover by the way they allow it to be inferior and corrupted by pursuing and following their own pathway in creativity. Beloved, the will of God is that all of us might be fruitful and fulfilled. He made us for this and created us for this. And His commands are that we might truly live life to the limits. Tell the person beside you, if you will, just, you know, mindful of, of, of the mask that you're wearing. Uh, he made you to live life to the limits. Just go ahead and tell them that, will you? He made you to live life to the limits. If you don't have anybody beside you to talk to, tell the wall or something. (laughs) 
Leviticus 18 is where you find the second classic passage most commonly referenced on this subject that we're looking at. Living and loving, the look and life of love in a broken world, particularly when it comes to the matter of homosexuality. We looked at Romans 1 in our last time together. That was the first classic passage that is so commonly referenced. And the second is this one that we have opened before us today, Leviticus 18. Along with Romans 1, already considered, Leviticus 18 is usually used and abused in the conversation or the argument or the debate or whatever the case may be. And usually one word in this passage, particularly the passage that we read together, is taken out of context. And I'm sure we all know what that word is. It's the word abomination. Would you say that word with me? Abomination. Say it again. Abomination. And, and this word, this word abomination itself has such a, uh, just even when we say it as gently as we just did, it, it's a word that has such a thunderous sound to it that it seems to slam the case closed right there. Merely the utterance, God sees this as an abomination. And I've seen, and perhaps you have too, well-known television preachers pounding on their pulpits, talking about what was going on with the homosexuals, speaking about the gay pride advocates and parades, and their righteous indignation, saying, I look forward to the day that I'll be caught away into the presence of the Lord and while ascending to heaven, watch the fire of God's judgment come upon these people. And loved ones, I don't know what's worse. That such a declaration is made by so-called followers of Christ or that they even get audience applause to that kind of stuff. You'll hear the fiery, fuming preacher declare it, and then you'll see the crowd applaud it. And I don't know what's worse. It, it is so removed and so remote to anything that has to do with the heart of God which we looked at together last time, or the meaning of these passages of Scripture that we've been looking at, Romans 1 and now Leviticus 18. It would merit our having time on another occasion to look into the whole of this chapter, Leviticus 18. But let me just summarize it quickly for us this morning. There are essentially three segments to Leviticus 18. 
the first five verses, the Lord essentially is saying that I have brought you out of Egypt and I am bringing you into Canaan. He's saying, I have brought you out of a lifestyle where everything in the world had the touch and the taint of the idolatrous and the self-indulgent. And I'm bringing you into an environment where the residue of the former occupants and residents has to do with the satanic. Everybody track with me here, okay? Despite the distractions that are going on, just tune into what's happening here around the Scriptures. The Lord says, I've brought you out of a lifestyle where everything in the world had the touch and taint of the idolatrous and the self-indulgent. And I'm bringing you into a whole new environment where the residue of the former occupants and residents has to do with satanic and evil and the most distorted and wicked. But God says to Israel, but you are my people. My chosen people. I have chosen you. I have brought you out of Egypt. And I'm not bringing you into a spiritually sanitary, pure environment. But I'm bringing you into a place of promise nonetheless. Where you are and what you be and what you do in my name, God says to them, will make a difference. And this summarizes Israel's specific sociological and redemptive historical context and situation in relation to the Ten Commandments that were given in the book of Exodus to Moses and to the application of those Ten Commandments and what are considered case laws such as this one in Leviticus 18.22, which we have open in front of us today. This obviously is not one of the Ten Commandments, but it is a case law in light of the Ten Commandments. Because it, in, in carrying out what we are addressing in this passage, God is saying, if you do these things, then you are violating my commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. So these are case laws that have to do with that particular commandment. And God is speaking to Israel within the context of His redemptive work and their sociological and historical context of His redemptive work in their lives. So these case laws, such as this one, Leviticus 18.22, which cannot be dismissed, as some case laws can. Some of the case laws that you'll read about in Leviticus, in, in these chapters, in fact, 17, 18, and 19, they can be dismissed as irrelevant to us today and in their application. But some case laws cannot be dismissed out of hand, without thought. 
we obviously live in a very different sociological and a dramatically different redemptive historical moment in God's history after the coming of Jesus Christ, as we've been commemorating and celebrating during this season of Advent and Christmas. So some of these case laws can be dismissed and set aside, but others cannot be. For example, we don't concern ourselves today with whether we are wearing uh, clothing that is composed of more than one fabric. We don't get bent out of shape about that. As, as Leviticus 19.19 19 says, there is a case law right there. You shall not wear garments that have a mixture of fabrics in them. We're not concerned about that today. Another example, when we plant our gardens or farmers sow their fields, we don't avoid sowing different types of seed in a single field. Again, Leviticus 19.19 talks about this. We don't avoid that. We have no religious qualms about sitting down to dinner as Christ followers. We have no religious qualms in sitting down to a dinner that might include bacon. Everybody say hallelujah for bacon. <laughs> Can't have too much bacon, right? Well, actually you can, but you know what I mean. We, we have no qualms with that, bacon or pork or, or lobster even. Hallelujah for lobster too. But Leviticus 11, Leviticus chapter 11 talks about these case laws and, and God instructs the people. Well, those case laws really have no application for us today and so on. And there are others that I could draw your attention to. However, that said... Dismissing the case laws completely out of hand, without thought, reveals an extremely superficial understanding of the laws of the Older Testament and the connection to our present behavior and context today. So to properly understand how these laws apply to us, we have to pay close attention to the context. Any text of Scripture that you pull out of its context and try to make some sort of independent application with it is a pretext. You're not... You're, you're, you're totally misapplying and misusing the Scriptures by doing that. We like to do that. How many of you grew up, and or maybe you even still have them, those those little promise boxes of Scripture. Remember those? And you'd pull out a Scripture for the day. And they were wonderful things. I'm not completely kiboshing them. They were wonderful in, a, in, in some ways. But the terrible thing about them is we took those verses and we would read them and claim them and proclaim them not having any understanding of the context those verses were drawn from. And in so doing, we misunderstood them most often. We have to always understand the context and pay close attention as students of the Word, which we are called to be as His followers. We are to study, to show ourselves approved, 
as his followers and as students of the word, one of the, one of the principal practices and rules of reading the Bible properly and understanding the Bible properly is paying close attention to the context. Jesus himself, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 in particular, he says that the law, and and we've studied the Sermon on the Mount together here in its series of its own. You remember he says the law continues to remain relevant and will continue to remain relevant until heaven and earth disappear unless the purpose of the particular law is already accomplished. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so that is taking place. But the law continues to remain relevant unless the purpose of that particular law is already accomplished. So, the law then is now to be interpreted and understood how? In the light of Christ. As we read the Older Testament, we read it with an understanding in the light of Christ. That is important. And many of these case laws in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, they continue to find application for us today, guiding us to how God wants us to live according to His intention for our fruitfulness and flourishing. That we might live life to the limits. They're not to restrict us, but they are to, they are to guide us and protect us. That we might live life fully as He intends. They serve as guiding governors to our general ethical principles relevant to our living today. Let me give you a few examples here. The law, for instance... The case law of goring an ox that you'll find in Exodus 21. And the law about building a fence around a roof that you'll find in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Both those laws are still relevant to us today and find application and are helpful to us. The first one, the goring of the ox, guides us as to moral culpability when animals under our care and control harm someone. In other words, perhaps you've heard this if, you, if, you've, if you've had any exposure to the world of law and studying law or you know someone who's a lawyer. Lawyers call, use what they call the law of the second bite. Referring in this case to increased responsibility and liability when a dog bites someone a second time. 
the law makes us alert to protecting life and the safety of others. And in so doing, we observe the sixth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. So, there is a case law that still has application for us today. Building a fence around a roof. You shall build a parapet, the Scripture says in Deuteronomy 22. Basically, a fence around the 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 ridge the the edge of of your roof in our own architecture and building today still finds application what do we do when we have a swimming pool we build fences around swimming pools why do we do that for the same reason god was guiding israel to do it why do we put those, you know, those little plastic infant plugs in wall sockets to protect the life and safety of others? These are, these are general ethical principles. Where do we get these ideas from? They come from the Scriptures. Now, when it comes to the warfare that took place in the Older Testament that we are no doubt somewhat aware of, even those who, who don't seem to really have any knowledge of the Scriptures seem to know about the violence in the Old Testament, the warfare that took place, which was in fact the struggle with sword and shield of those times, has been translated in our times as spiritual warfare. There's still application that we find. But you and I have no power in spiritual warfare. If anything you are praying for anyone you are praying for, you don't love. The law of love must prevail. So even in our prayers for others, I don't know how you pray for others sometimes. Love is to be driving how we pray for one another. We have no power in spiritual warfare if we do not have love. You see, the real raw power of prayer, the raw power of ministry in the Holy Spirit, the the power of this, the raw power of your life and mine in God, most foundationally does not have to do with authority in the spiritual realm as much as it has to do with an authority born of loving. Because the walk in the Spirit has transformed your heart toward first the Lord and then toward those immediately around you and continues to grow in your love for everybody else. The core of the flow of His power, beloved, in our lives is directly proportionate to the flow of His love in our lives. Are, are you seeing this? 
Without love, we have no authority. Without love, we have no power. Paul goes on with that in Corinthians. You may be able to sing like an angel. You may be, have all these abilities and, and all of these gifts and skills and everything else. But if you don't have love, you're just a loud, noisy gong giving everybody a headache. Love must be what drives us. Living and loving in a broken world. How do we do that? What does that look like? That's what we're considering here. And so as you come to this passage in Leviticus now, this scripture, and we hear the heart of God, His word says when He gives the accurate context to the listing of these things, including the abominable, is that we hear his heart, and his heart is one that says, I want you, my people, to know life. It is my intention that you know life to its fullest, in its most fruitful form and capacity, and in its most flourishing. And if you're going to know it that way, here's what you must abide by. I want you to now relearn how to live life that works. That's what God is saying to His people as they enter into this land of promise. Leviticus 18, verses 6-23 to 23 are categories of the perverse. So the first five verses, we get an understanding of where what God's heart is. He's saying, I'm bringing you out of Egypt, but I'm bringing you in to a new land. And this new land is not completely sanitary, spiritually speaking. And so you're going to need to have some guidelines here to abide by. And then in verses 6 to 23, we, we get these categories of the perverse. And there are three words used to describe it. There are 14 verses that deal with nakedness uncovering the nakedness of relatives. The constant reference to the uncovering the nakedness does not simply have to do with nudity. There's, there's more to it than that. It's talking about uncovering for the purpose of sexual activity. The word used to finally summarize all of these nakedness references is the word wickedness. The word in Hebrew means literally an evil, mischievous thought, plan, purpose, or intent. You're uncovering someone with evil intent. The depriving of a person of their covering, uncovering them, Things that are done in child abuse. Things that are done in incest. Things that are done when there is cooperation and mutual consent. It all is at its root 
an evil plan. And God is addressing this. All of these things related to this understanding of nakedness are all outside the scope of that appropriate and most natural and desirable moments of the purity of nakedness and total availability of husband to wife and wife to husband. God's not saying that that's that's, that's wicked, that's evil, the relation of a husband and wife and wife to husband. He's saying anything outside the scope of that is somehow driven by wicked intent. Other than that divine context, the nakedness for the sake of the sexual activity is called wickedness or that which is evil in its thought and intention and plan and execution. There are two verses that reference the idea of abomination. Again, this is in our verses 6 to 23, these categories of the perverse. There are two verses that reference the idea of abomination. It's the word in the Hebrew that means that it is morally abhorrent, disgusting, detestable. It is totally objectionable in every way. And included here are two things. Unsurprisingly, the two things that we face the most challenge with morally in our culture today. And it has to do with the killing of children. Interesting, isn't it? Especially in light of this last year and all our indigenous discoveries that our indigenous people already knew about, but nobody ever listened to them. And yet, here we are today. You see, if our worship gatherings, loved ones, let me just throw this in as an aside, okay? This one's for free. If our worship gatherings make no connection with what is going on in our current world, then they, they are not in line with the heart of God. So these two things, and interestingly, they have to do with killing of children, and they have to do with homosexuality. The word of the Lord is, regarding both of these things, this is an abomination. The word is saying this is morally abhorrent. Abomination is not another category of sin level that demands greater grace or forgiveness on God's part. It just speaks of the depths to which there has come a reversal of God's creation order. And it is morally abhorrent in the eyes of God. And that is simply a statement on God's part to say. He is saying this is not what I intended it to be. This is the reversal, in fact, of what I intended it to be. This is not the created purpose with which I created. And it's a statement on God's part to say, and it's mine to teach and preach that He has said it. 
It is not mine. It's mine and yours to proclaim that he, yes, has said this, but it's not mine or yours to self-righteously inflict and harshly impose as, as, a, as a judgmental assignment on anyone. As I illustrated earlier, about those that we've seen and heard, you say, I can't wait till I'm taken up to heaven and these ones burn in the fire. That is not God's heart in saying this at all. His heart is redemptive. His heart is broken. His heart is a heart of love. John tells us in chapter 1 and verse 14 of his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. To let people see what God has said as opportunity may arise for you and me, even in this new year. That is the privilege we have if it's invited. And we are to do it the way Jesus did. With grace and truth. But to make my pompous, self-righteous declarations of how abominable the acts of other people are, when there is in this list of things, both in our previous passage, Romans 1, and now this passage, Leviticus 18, there, there are things that have in one way or another touched most of us in different ways. If we're completely honest before God and with ourselves. If not an actual deed, certainly the Bible equates this from the words of Jesus in mental thought activity. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, if you even look at another woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. So, beloved, consequently, there is no one of us that stands guilt-free. The last verses of the book of Leviticus, please notice, after the categories of the reverse and the perverse, the perverse, the last verses are, in Israel, the mandate of capital punishment. Anyone that does any of these things, the Lord said, shall be cut off from the people. They would be put to death. And it is that which brings us to the place of perhaps the greatest confusion. Because understandably, there are people who will turn to the Bible when it hears the church of Jesus Christ declare Leviticus 18 calls this an abomination. And so these people will find a Bible and they'll look it up and rather than being directed to John 3 and the love of God in Jesus Christ, we have this pursuit to find out what is this about an abomination anyway? And I'd like to argue with it anyway. And they've got a ready argument. 
And the argument is this, that the last verses immediately following there in Leviticus 18 says, kill everybody that does it. And if you, if you ever let these Christians that say, I am an abomination, if you ever let them get into government, sooner or later we'll find legislation that will lead to exactly what is seen here in Leviticus 18. And we will not only be outlawed, but we'll finally be hunted up, put in jail, and if they have their way, it will be a program of capital punishment. And so you see the case that they create. Those that are battling with this lifestyle of homosexuality. You say, well, Pastor David, what does this mean then? What is this really about? Please listen closely. What this has to do with, beloved, is that the Lord revealed himself to Israel as their covenant God. He was going to make them a priestly people to the nations. He has cut covenant with them. And he said, you are a covenant people to me. He was not talking about the world in this context of Leviticus 18. He was not talking about what, what is to be done with these other nations. He was talking about his people and how they are to live and how they are to conduct themselves. His covenant people, not the world, and in this context, when he said, here's a bunch of, when he said, here's a bunch of laws, I want you to follow. He's not, this is not the world he is speaking to, the other nations. He's speaking to his people. He was talking about the people of covenant. He was saying, I want you as my people to be a kind of people where keeping my covenant becomes so clearly, manifestly desirable that the world will come to you and you will be a kingdom of priests to me. Redemptive purpose. As we walk in covenant devotion together, the world around will see and they'll be curious and fascinated and drawn to you. And as they come to you, you will have a priestly purpose to minister my love to them. A kingdom of priests. This means that the rule of their nation would be bridge building, redemptive and reconciling to humankind and people would come. The concept of priests has to do with bridge building. It has to do with a redemptive, reconciling reach that is coming from heaven via a person who is incarnating the living God and inviting people to come to know Him. It's not to build a wall against Him, but to open a way of understanding Him. Not building a wall between people and God, but a bridge. God says you as my covenant people, will be that 
to the nations of the world. They will want to come. In order for you to be that, though, it is necessary for you to understand that anything perverse will be destructive and ruinous to you and to my redemptive purpose in and through you. Are you tracking with me on this? God's heart and His Word for His people. Otherwise, you will not be able to be the people I have called you to be. In order to preserve the people that can be the redemptive influence of the world, these things shall not be preserved or tolerated in your midst, God says. The law that God made about this commandment of capital punishment for these various deeds was not something that he ever intended to be legislated into action in the court system of the globe. Hello. It was never his intention for it to be an agenda in our public court system what has come to be known as, as, as Christian nationalism might have this agenda. And we've seen this on our news feeds. This was meant for none other than His own covenant priestly people. And the same thing applies today, but it is not a literal stoning. Rather, it finds application in proper discipline and correction. Church discipline. Correction. As God establishes His church in the Newer Testament as we read later on. Beloved, the Lord is saying here, there is a death effect that takes place if the people of God do not live under the life-giving blessing of his disciplines. For example, if the covenant of marriage is not kept to by the leaders, those who, like myself, before you today, hold accountability before God because of their influence on the larger flock. If those marriages do not model what the Bible shows of commitment and fidelity, then there is something of a death impact, God says, that spreads through the whole church. So if you have a spiritual leader, if you have a pastor who, is, who has been unfaithful in his marriage, an infidel, and everybody just kind of turns a blind eye and yawns at that and says, well, okay, that's okay, there's grace, God's going and nothing is done about it, what that does, God says, is, is it begins to, to, to have a death-destructive impact through the whole body. Are, are you tracking with me here? God says that cannot happen. You are my people. So it must be disciplined and corrected. Not, we don't condemn the person. We don't stone them. We don't throw them out to the curb. We don't throw them under the bus. But we seek to come alongside them 
to move towards mending and reconciling and healing and restoration. And that's a, that's a, that's a process and it takes time. Because of Christ, truth and grace. And this is why ministries that violate these parameters are to be terminated. Not in a loveless exercise, but in a preserving one. That preserves and restores the possibilities of both that person and their marriage. And preserves the church as a whole against the corrupting influence of the kind of blindsiding that occurs when people don't know what is happening to them due to their ignorance of the word. And we've seen that happen in many congregations where things like this happen and people don't understand. And much of it is due to their lack of understanding of the scriptures and what, what is to be done. The call of the Scripture is always redemptive. The call of the Scripture is always restorative in its focus. Not condemning. It is always preserving. It is not saying to the world, you keep these rules and God will love you. But if you don't keep these rules, God's angry and mad and ticked off with you. That's not the message we're to deliver. For God commended His love toward us. Come on, you know the Scripture. While we were what? Yet sinners. He didn't wait till we cleaned up our act and then commend His love. He commended His love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. God so loved the world unconditionally, unqualifiedly, that He gave His only begotten Son. Romans 5.8, John 3.16. No regulations imposed on the world. Jesus says, I judge no one. Jesus came executing no judgment, but reaching, reaching, reaching a bridge of love. Now, this doesn't mean that he had no discernment. This doesn't mean that he was indiscriminative or promiscuous in the conduct of his own life. It means that he was not here to raise up a standard for people of the world to rise to, but to reach with the long arms of God to spiritually sick and hurting the lost, the dying, the blind, the dead, and needy in order to draw people into his heart. And that in those people who came to him, Something of a revealed, unveiling recovery of what Creator God had in mind as a standard for humanity might be then manifested and others would also desire this life. Not that we would take the, 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 the searchlight of our newfound righteousness and, and, and face it 
directly in the eyes of the unregenerate and condescendingly declare to them, when you get over the glare, because we're showing you how corrupt you are, then maybe we'll help you out of the dark. No. Rather, that light that has come and that has been given and that we in Christ are then called, that light was supposed to so examine our own lives and warm the presence of God's love in our own midst that it would ultimately radiate from us and capture the hearts of other people who did not know Him. This is the key of both understanding the heart of God and discerning the Word of God. And when we comprehend, loved ones, when we comprehend and apprehend these keys and hold them well in hand, then something will take place that is radically different from the sorrowful approach that so frequently occurs in the life of the church today. Would you stand together with me as Frank and the team come? Now, I've given you a boatload to consider and chew on. And it's kind of doubled up because we weren't together last Sunday. But let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us with these things, shall we?